Hi everyone. My name is Rigby Wallace and I serve on the leadership team of Common Ground Church across the city of Cape Town. I want to speak to you this morning on what I've entitled Blessed to be a Blessing. Blessed to be a Blessing. We're going to track the life of Abraham and the very, very special covenant or agreement that God made with him. Uh, this content in this message forms the kind of theological uh, north star of, of much of my ministry. It's what helped us give birth to the Common Ground story. And so over 35 years, uh, it's about time that we, we were exposed to it again. So I hope you'll be thoroughly encouraged and built up as we go to the scriptures now. So let's read together from Genesis chapter 11 from verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abraham and Nahor took wives. The name of Abraham's wife was Sarai, the name of Nahor's wife Micah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Micah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no child. Terah took Abraham his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. And the days of Terah was 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And by now you've probably been able to work out blessed is Abraham to be a blessing. What's interesting is if you look at the life of Abraham, uh, you see Paul continually referencing him in the New Testament as a kind of model of faith. He didn't choose David. He didn't choose Moses or Isaiah. He chose Abraham. And in Romans 4 and verse 3, it says, For what does the Scripture say? Paul speaking. Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. When God came to him with this call to leave uh, Haran and go to a land, he obeyed God. And so we find in the New Testament that Abraham is the most spoken about patriarch. So the big question, of course, is what exactly did Abraham believe? And Paul, again, in Galatians 3 and verse 8, says that it was the gospel that he believed. Now you're sitting there thinking, but didn't the gospel only start with Jesus? And that's why we need to recover some of the foundation of our faith by going back a little. And we read these words in Galatians 3 and verse 8. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, 
preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. That's the gospel summary. In you shall all the nations or people groups of the world, families of nations, be blessed. And so in a sense, Abraham is held up in the New Testament as a kind of a, a prototype disciple and a prototype missionary. Now, this is quite weighty stuff. So just to lighten things a bit, I'd love to get your attention to the screen. We're going to look at a little video clip, which is both uh, hilarious and instructive. So every time I see that clip, I find myself chuckling or even laughing. And when I reflect on it, it just brings a smile to my face. And the simple reason is sometimes the promise of freedom is more scary than the ruts we have behaved ourselves into. Even uh, Abram in Haran uh, needed to get extracted. He'd got stuck. And uh, I'm hoping that you'll chuckle at some of your own behaviors, some of the times we ourselves get stuck in our discipleship and we need some extra help in being extracted. So I've got three big points. And the first one is uh, I want us to see the genesis, the beginnings, and the framework of the Abrahamic covenant, the special agreement and arrangement that God came to with Abraham. But it starts, uh, and the buildup from Genesis chapter 11 uh, we read it, is there's this list of all kinds of names. What's important to see is that this isn't just about, you know, who's who in the zoo. It's a kind of a status update on the whole world, on humanity, on history, in a post-Babel world. Uh, for those of you that have read chapter 11, you'll know that early in the chapter, God has scattered the nations. And now God is coming to Abraham with a plan to gather the nations in some special, special way. And so chapter, Genesis chapter 1 to 11 is really just the story of the beginnings. It's the subplot. And now the main stuff arrives and it focuses in on Abraham and his family. And what we find with Abraham while he's still in Ur of, of Chaldez is this isn't a God-fearing family thriving in the land. It's actually a pagan family barely making it. And for uh, Abram personally, he's married to Sarai and she's barren and he's old. The book of Joshua describes this family. It says, long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Guys, these guys were busy worshiping sun gods and moon gods. They were totally given over to pagan idolatry. 
And so just focusing in, here's a lovely quote from Walter Brueggemann. He says, the barrenness of Sarah is a metaphor of hopelessness. There is no human power to invent a future. The human race and human history have just hit a dead end. It's over. And then God speaks and there's hope again. And Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1, where God says to Abraham, I want you to leave. This is, this is what happens. This is how God changes our lives. It shows us that when God speaks and we hear, redemption begins to happen. When God speaks into the chasm, into the void, into the shadows, into the darkness of hopelessness, he calls Abraham out of that darkness and into his most marvelous life, life, light. Just backing up a little, Terah, Abram's father, took his family away from Ur of Chaldez to the land of Canaan. He was already on his way to Canaan. But they stopped in Haran and settled there. But Haran was not the land the Lord had for his people. Terah, Abram's dad, had got stuck in Haran, having made a good beginning. But for Abraham, it was now time, as God spoke to him, to leave his country, to leave his family, to leave his father's house. It was a time to follow God. When God says, go, the King James Version says, get out of there. God is saying, your father won't go, so you go. Get yourself out of there now. It's the kind of call that caused Abraham to rely wholly upon God. And often the miserable life that we know is better than the unknown life we fear. And Abraham is in that kind of place. Tim Keller helps us to see the internal struggle that Abraham must have faced. Abraham is saying, well, you know, God, I've come halfway. This is as far as dad and everybody else wanted to go. You know, Nahor and the guys, I just can't get them. They like it here and they don't want to go any further. I've come, I've come halfway. So what is God saying? God is saying, well, Abraham, it's not enough. It's not enough just to be part of a religious community or a non-religious community or for us today in the 21st century just to be part of a Christian ethos. Some of you might say, well, I'm, a, I'm from a Christian family and I, uh, I've, I've been part of a church. But I think Abraham's encounter with God speaks to us. Keller asked the question, have you met God yourself? Have you encountered him yourself in your own self? Has it penetrated you as an individual? Have you made that personal commitment? You see it? For Abraham, for you and I, this is radical. It's deeply personal. It's about being called to believe God and trust God in a new way. And so how does Abraham make this faith his very own? How does he demonstrate faith? By believing God, by packing his bags, by calling his family, by taking that little nu nucleus of household with him. And that's what Abraham does. He steps over the line. He becomes a believer. And, and as we sort of press further into Genesis 
chapter 12 from verse 1 onwards, particularly 1 to 3. Remember, he's been, he's been sent, go from your country and your kindred and family to your, and, and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Notice it's both sacrificial. He's got to leave what he had and what he knew and he's got to embrace what God is promising. Wow. And that's simply how the gospel is. It calls us to trust, to believe. And it's not merely a calling away from our past life and our sin. It's a calling and a promise into undeserved blessing, which for Abraham includes being declared righteous because he obeyed God and it was, account, it was counted to him as righteousness. But notice the three things that he left behind correspond to the three things God is promising. In leaving his country, he was leaving part of his identity. But right at the heart of it, God has promised uh, to make of Abraham a great nation. This isn't just leaving a country. He's going to become a great nation. In leaving his kindred, the bigger community of tribe, he was leaving behind his name, that which authenticated him. But God promised to give Abraham a new name, a great name. And in leaving his father's house, which is the most sacrificial thing, that's the place where every son would have received blessing. That's where the son would have received affirmation. That's where the son would have received inheritance. He was leaving the blessing of his own father's household. But the father uh, of heaven, Yahweh, promised Abraham he'd receive multifaceted blessings. And more than that, he would be a blessing to the whole world. It's important to see there were two dimensions in this covenant. Uh, Don Richardson, uh, in his book, uh, Eternity in Their Hearts. There we are. I got it. Uh, he refers to this, uh, this covenant as having two dimensions, the top line, which is blessing to Abraham, and the bottom line, which is blessing through Abraham. And he's saying to Abraham, uh, I'm, I'm going to make you great. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you influential. Uh, I'm going to bless you in every dimension of life. And I'm also going to protect you from your enemies. What an amazing promise. And with that, uh, he's also promised this, this land as an inheritance. But the bottom line is as Abraham had received blessing from Yahweh, the bottom line, like in any contract, you read all, read all those stuff and then you've got a sign on the bottom line. The bottom line to the blessings he's received is that he would be called to extend the blessings of grace to all ethnic groups, to all people. And folks, what's interesting is that in anthropology, this is the only covenant recorded that has the whole world in its sights for good and for blessing. So that's the first point. It's the longest one. The next two are a little shorter. So how this covenant plays out in Abraham's life is the second part of the talk. And we read in Galatians 3, verse 7, 
which is looking back on this covenant, on the season of Abraham's life and says, understand then that those who have faith, those who've put their faith, New Testament Christians put their faith in Jesus, says you are also sons of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and foretold the gospel to Abraham. Here's the summary. This is the gospel. All nations will be blessed through you. Don't you find that interesting? That he doesn't say, this is the gospel. I will bless you, Abraham, and all nations will be blessed, will, will be blessed through you. He drops that first part because it's implied in the second. It's so embedded in the covenant. So Paul just lands in what happens when you really understand the gospel. You'll have a heart for people beyond yourself. The gospel always have a forwarding address is the case he's making. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of blessing. So quickly, who's the first person the Bible seems to record as having heard the gospel? Well, according to Paul, Abraham got the gospel in advance. In a sense, who's the first person to get the Great Commission to be a blessing to the nations of his day? It would have been Abraham. Well, I've got some brilliant news for you. Who's the first guy to blow it? Who's the first guy to blow it really big time? Well, of course, uh, it's our father in our faith. And uh, we're born of good stock, but not perfect stock. And so uh, Pharaoh, the first opportunity he has to be a blessing is when they're experiencing famine in the land of Canaan. And so he pops off to see with his family to see Pharaoh uh, in Egypt to get relief. But he does a deal with Sarai and says, when we get there, just tell Pharaoh that you're my sister. Because when he sees how gorgeous you are, he's going to want to have his way with you. And, uh, and then he might want to kill me. So for my protection, won't you just tell them that you're my sister, which Sarai complies with. And the first opportunity that Abraham has to be a blessing to the Egyptians, suddenly God, a disease breaks out in Pharaoh's home because here's what's at stake. Think about it. God says through you and your offspring, through your seed, in and through Sarah at that time, Sarah, her name becomes, through your seed, all the nations are going to be. If Sarah sleeps with Pharaoh and he impregnates her, the whole future of the Abrahamic covenant is at stake. The whole future of nations being blessed, God's plan, this covenant that he's established. And so when Pharaoh discovers this, he is so angry and he said, look what you've done. You've caused this to me. Think about it. You think, well, that's just a, a once-off mistake. In Genesis chapter 19, Abraham and Sarah do exactly the same thing with Abimelech, another pagan king. And they come to town and Abimelech looks at, at uh, uh, Sarah and says, wow, what a gorgeous lady. And uh, the next minute he's looking down from his his uh, his uh, uh, palace window and he sees uh, Abraham and Sarah like being a little bit romantic and he realizes he's been lied to 
But what's happened in his case is the whole household, his whole household, all the wombs have been shut up. There is no conception. Again, God is having to defend his uh, purposes, his plans that would, would uh, go awry if Abimelech slept with Sarah. And in both cases, with Pharaoh and Abimelech, both of them pay bounty to Abraham. He gets all the riches and the gold and the silver and the gold, uh, the, all the stuff, uh, goats, uh, sheep, cattle, and he leaves each time with abundance of possessions. I find it interesting how God warned Abimelech that Abraham and Sarah had lied to them. He speaks to him in a dream and, and, and makes him aware of what's going on. Apart from what he had seen, he makes him aware that uh, he's been deceived. I wonder in the 21st century how many times God has to warn uh, people who are non-Christians around uh, shortfalls in our integrity in the way we deal with people, whether we're being truthful. But this is so instructive. And the question is now on the table. And, you know, we haven't even looked at uh, uh, Sarah asking Abraham to sleep with Hagar, this whole thing of God's taking uh, too long to give them their own child so they're going to help God and do things in their own strength. So the question is asked, how is God then going to bring Abram around? Because that's also instructive. Because if we've got so much promise flowing toward us as New Testament followers of Jesus, uh, I think by looking at that first century prototype or the first prototype disciple and missionary, there's some lessons there. God precipitates crisis in the life of Abraham. And basically what we're seeing the fault line in Abraham's faith. Yes, he did obey God. And yes, he did understand the covenant, but his preoccupation was with the top line, blessings coming to him. And so he's like the sheriff of Nottingham, wherever he goes, one for me, two for me, three for me, four for me, more for me. And he's just gathering and gathering. And so Yahweh has to sober him up. Now, friends, the Abrahamic covenant did not have a plan B. There's two kinds of covenants in Scripture. There's what is called the, the Sunthiki covenant, which is a covenant between two equals. It's like a commercial agreement. And then there's a diathiki covenant from the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament. They took the Hebrew word for, for covenant, made it very clear that it's a covenant between a greater and a lesser. It's not the greater arriving and the lesser negotiating terms. It's the greater announcing what he's going to do. And so there's no backing off for God. He has made a commitment to work in and through Abraham. He's made a commitment to work in and through his church. He's made a commitment to work into the world to bring blessing in and through us. So God is not going to back off. He's going to discipline. He's going to shape. He's going to correct. I wonder if... This also is instructive. We watch Abraham uh, being asked to take his only son uh, onto Mount Moriah. And the Bible says God was testing him. We don't have time to get into all of that. But it is, it is remarkable that uh, uh, it's almost as though 
God is saying, Abraham, you want to be reckless with this covenant and its fulfillment? You want to, uh, in a sense, compromise my reputation in the world? I've wanted you to carry that on your shoulders to bring glory to me before unbelieving nations. And you've embarrassed me. So you want to be reckless with the covenant? I can also be a little bit reckless. And he tests him to go and uh, offer his only son. And then, my dear friends, God does one of the most condescending things that he's ever done in the history of the world. The most condescending thing God has done is when he sent his own son to be made in human likeness. But how's this for condescending? After Abraham is about to take the life of Isaac, the angel of the Lord speaks to him from heaven and says, now I know that you fear God. Something has happened. Something's changed in the relationship. It feels like Abraham is back on side. And then God says, and now I know that you fear me. And because you've not withheld your son from me, he says in, uh, in, in Genesis 22, I now swear by myself. What's happening here? God now adds an oath to the promise he made in Genesis 12. God now adds an oath to the covenant. He swears by himself. God says, how on earth will Abraham really take me seriously? Well, now I'm going to wait my promise in Genesis 12 with an oath, I'm going to put my name on this. I'm going to put my character on this. I want to make it absolutely clear that this is going to happen. And what is also amazing about the oath, and of course an oath only makes sense in a fallen world. Remember Yahweh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they, they live in in pure righteousness and holiness and truthfulness. So this oath is not needed in heaven. It's needed in a fallen world where people doubt things and struggle, have heard things and need the things they've heard to be affirmed. God now adds this oath. But what he does in Genesis 22, he adds the oath to both dimensions of the covenant. He says, I swear by myself, I will surely bless you. I swear by myself through you and your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so here's the last point in this talk. We've seen the Genesis and uh, the framework of this Abrahamic covenant. We're seeing it, how it's being worked out in the life of Abraham himself. And the good news is he's not perfect and God works with that raw clay as he will work with us. Thirdly, how does this relate to us? You and I in the room, followers of Jesus through 2000 years of church history, how does it relate to us as Christ followers? Particularly for us here today, here and now. And we read in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26, it says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ, who were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Drum solo. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abram's seed and heirs according to the promise. You too are blessed to bless. Remarkably, uh, uh, 
Galatians 3 and verse 9 also tells us that uh, through our faith in Christ, we've become the children of Abraham and that we are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. I just want to ask you to pause a minute to think about that. This faith we've put in Christ puts us in the place of undeserved, scandalous, irrational blessing. The problem is that we don't always understand that in an age of consumerism and stuff. What I want you to notice is that when we put our faith in Jesus, a very remarkable thing happens. We don't just get a new faith, a new future. When we put our faith in Jesus, we don't just get, a, oh, we're going to heaven. Isn't that great? Oh, Jesus promised to be with us. Isn't that wonderful? What Paul's arguing is you don't just get a new future. You get actually a new past. You get a new history, a brand new history. You get a new family tree. If you're disappointed, if you have got disappointment of your, in your natural family, uh, Paul's arguing for this most affirming understanding of our faith. When we put our faith in Jesus, you are grafted into a family of faith with roots that goes all the way back to Abraham. And you described as being the very seed of Abraham and heirs of the original promise. It's ours in the new covenant. Or another way to say it is the new covenant is the flowering and the full expression of what God brought to Abraham in Genesis 12. Both the top line are ours, God's blessing to us, and the bottom line is ours. In Abraham, it was flowing through a single man and his family. Now in Christ, that mandate to, that promise of blessing and the mandate to bless is flowing not just through a single man and his family, it's flowing through, through the one new man, the church. And we stand shoulder to shoulder as an army of blessing. Wow. And now we're coming into land. In Hebrews chapter 6, we read again, this is New Testament commentary on what happened on Mount Moriah when when Abraham got that oath and listen up because this is mind-boggling. When God uh, made his promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. He said, I will surely bless you and multiply your descendants. And so Abraham, after he waited patiently, obtained the promise. Men swear by someone greater than themselves and their oath serves as a confirmation to end all argument. So when God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of the promise, he guaranteed it with an oath. Thus by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be strongly encouraged. Now, this is what is mind-blowing. I want you to see, yes, we read earlier about the oath uh, God made with Abraham in Genesis 22. How many of you are aware of the fact that in Genesis 22, God didn't have only Abraham in his sights? In Genesis 22, when God added his oath, it wasn't primarily even for Abraham and his immediate descendants. Look what it says, for when God wanted to make the unchanging nature, 
of His purpose. What's His purpose? I want to bless you to be a blessing in this world. He says, I want to make it clear, very clear to the heirs of the promise. Who are the heirs of the promise? We've just gone through that. When you put your faith in Jesus, you become Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So God's oath is wanting to put an end to all arguments in our minds where we doubt whether God wants to bless us in His scandalously wonderful ways or whether God wants to use us to bring blessing to others. Through your faith in Jesus, you are Abraham's seed. And if you're Abraham's seed, then God had you in His sights, had you and I in this room today, in this meeting, in His sights. And He has now guaranteed this call to, to bless us so that we can be a blessing to others with an oath. And here's the point. Do you think it's possible for God to ever break His promise? Is it possible, possible for God to not uphold His oath? What's at stake here? If God does not uphold His oath, He would be committing perjury in the court of human opinion and we would not be able to trust Him in any way. But He who spared not His own Son and freely gave Him up for us all with all those blessings, how much more will He also, with having given Christ, freely give us all things. God wants to put a, an end to that argument, to those gnawing doubts about whether God really loves us, whether He really wants to bless us. God wants to uh, 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 eradicate from our minds and our hearts any sense of intimidation around whether my one and only life can be a blessing in the world. And God, by the Holy Spirit, is powerfully at work in His heirs to bless us. Our problem, of course, is that in the 21st century, we fixated, like Abraham was, with top-line blessing. A quick look at Facebook and Twitter shows how many people today feel hashtag blessed. School bursary, I got one, yay, hashtag blessed. An unexpected salary increase, hashtag blessed. I've got such a wonderful family, hashtag blessed. And if what you're so excited about and blessing is because of what's flowing to you. You have not understood the Abrahamic covenant. When Jesus uh, uh, called his disciples to go into all the world, it was to fulfill this mandate to, with these blessings we've received in Christ, to pour them out on the world. And so our danger of concentrating on the top line is in every generation something uh, that needs to be addressed. And uh, one of the things I often do in conversations, I ask leaders and others to say, check the grace flow in your life. How much flow is, uh, grace is flowing to you and how much grace is flowing from you. And Walter Brueggemann tells us the dominant ideologies of our time, they yearn for settlement, security, Placement, privilege. This is what Abraham left for a new category of blessing. And I want to put that on the table as we, as we, as we, as we come to a close. Our true blessings are inherently spiritual, eternally, eternal and transcendent. They don't exclude material blessings. They don't exclude uh, uh, physical 
blessings because we're physical beings. But the ones that last beyond this life are the spiritual, eternally transcendent ones, like forgiveness. The psalmist says, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven and whose sins the Lord does not count against him. The gift of righteousness, this right standing with God. This indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's power and commissioning that, that gives us confidence to live out our faith on the front foot. The 24-7 access that we have to God in prayer. These are the blessings, the assurance of faith. And of course, the abundance of God's goodness as he supplies all our needs in terms of of provision, add to that divine protection, add to that uh, the rest that we can enter into. We've ceased from trying to earn our salvation. Add to that the fact that we've been seated with Christ and blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. It seems like Paul wanted us to see that there's a category of blessing that transcends this life. And that's why we promised eternal life now. We're not waiting to die to get it. So why this talk? I think many of us live with a sort of a general understanding of what God is doing. And it's very much like ambient light. We can be in a little bit of darkness and then somebody switches the light on and all the photons uh, gather together in a sort of random way and give us a general sense of illumination. But special revelation is when those photons are arranged in like a, a pattern and they accelerate it down through a tunnel. It's called laser light. And laser light, my friends, are what burn something uh, that, that are able to, to make an indelible mark. They use it in surgery to remove cataracts from our eyes. I wonder how many of us need cataracts removed from our, our eyes to see what God wants us to see. We are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Maybe God wants through special revelation, this body of teaching to awaken us. Like the prophet Isaiah says, arise, shine, light has come. Or humorously like that sheep whose head is down in the, in the, in the, in the whatever you call it again, <laughs> Time to lift our heads and focus and see the light. My friends, our neighborhoods and our cities and the nations of the world, we blessed as they taste the salt and the light of you and I, God's very own blessed people. And maybe some homework for us to do this week is do a blessing audit. Is it blessing to you? Is that preoccupies you? Or is it blessing through you. It's not enough to say I'm blessed and that we are irrationally so by the grace of God. But maturity is when we move from wanting to see it all flow to us to where our lives become the riverbed of God's grace flowing through us. I'd love to just close in prayer and ask you to, to do your blessing audit this week it's not top line, it's not bottom line, it's top line and bottom line. So let's be before the Lord in prayer. Thank you so much for your attention today. 
Lord, I want to come before you today with all my brothers and sisters. I want to invite your presence. I want to ask you, Lord, like you interrupted Abram's life in the busyness of his uh, moment in history and you interrupted him and got him to live and walk in a new way. But you didn't do it by intimidating him or bullying him. You did it by incentivizing him to new possibilities of living in the scandalous goodness of God but where his life and his uh, own offspring would be part of a world blessing movement. Lord, thank you for 25 years in common ground where you've blessed us to be a blessing and we've seen congregations multiplied. We've seen uh, biblical justice and grace uh, splash on the pain in our city. And Lord, today, as we begin to emerge and get a second wind as it were to serve our city to serve the church planting vision into the world we ask you make our lives a riverbed of your blessing of your goodness of your grace we want to offer to you our lives our money our strength our gifts our uh, uh, all our advantages and our privileges, they all come from your hand anyway. Won't you commission us and send us today to not just be blessed, but to be blessed to be a blessing. In Christ's name, for his glory, amen.